Hello and welcome back to Fly on the Wall Podcast. My name is Justin. And I'm Alan. And we are really excited to be back once again. Uh, we have a fantastic guest on this week. His name is Kevin Madden. He's a good friend of geopolitics and he's a longtime Republican communication strategist who worked really all elements of Republican comms. Um, and he has a bunch of fun stories to tell, a bunch of cool insights about that and how things have changed over the years um, for campaigning, being on the Hill, things like that. Uh, so definitely stick around for that. And we know you're tired of hearing this reminder, but before we get to that, follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook at FlyOnTheWallPod, or email us your thoughts, FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and we follow back, which is big. All right, uh, before we do get into our interview with Kevin, let's hit that segment wheel, Alec. We have, oh, this is a good one. Did you see that? Uh, our did you see that for the week is during uh, the Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, uh, had a couple hearings up on the Hill this week with both the Senate and House about Facebook data and privacy things um, in which there was a few, emphasize a few amusing moments. Um, more than from, a few. More than a few. From particular senators who were less familiar, I guess, with how Facebook runs. Um, and one particular very entertaining, did you see that moment, was when Senator Orrin Hatch asked Mark Zuckerberg um, about Facebook's business model and how they make money, to which Zuckerberg looked into the senator uh, for a couple long seconds, eventually smiled and said, Senator, we run ads, uh, yes. which apparently <laughs> pleased Orrin Hatch, although maybe you should have known that before. And maybe that's, yeah, maybe... He asked how you run a business model when you're only selling, when you're only giving away free stuff and, you know, it's kind of like a TV channel or anything else. Evidently, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's spin that wheel again. All right, what do we got, Alec? We have in or out. So we haven't done this one in a, we haven't gotten this one, the segment wheel in a while. Uh, but basically the way it works is uh, we're going to come up with, we have a topic and we are going to discuss if we're in, uh, do we support this or out, do we not? And the topic is regulating Facebook. It's an interesting one. Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I am in on regulating Facebook for the obvious reasons. Uh, we should make sure that's not being used to hijack our democracy. Um, but I uh, do not know nearly enough about how Facebook works and the technology behind it. Um, and all that jazz to say what are the concrete steps we should take to regulate it. So I will defer those details and the uh, practical side of it to people who are much smarter than I am. Uh, but from a philosophical perspective, I would I'd be in. Yeah, that's a you bring up a couple of really interesting points. Or I, I, I guess I'd be in, but it really depends because it's a very kind of broad way to regulate Facebook. And you saw some of this come up during the uh, Mark Zuckerberg hearings this week. Is you can regulate it as like a entity that like kind of, I don't want to say mines data, but like collects data, basically. It affects personal information, sells that personal information, mostly to advertisers and stuff like that. So that, for example, Aaron, you and I know this well, when you're like searching for a tux rental, like men's warehouse ads just are constantly all over your Facebook for weeks on end. Um, but then there's also like, and this came up like not as much actually uh, in the hearings, but like is Facebook an actual like business monopoly? Um, and do does it need to be regulated as monopoly or broken up or things like that? It's not unprecedented, unprecedented, excuse me, for the Senate um, to kind of step in and break up private monopolies. 
Um, I think a lot more work has to be done in regards to deciding whether or not Facebook's a monopoly because it's just a, it doesn't really fit any kind of existing category for a business. It's not like mm-hmm. it's a, you know, train monopoly or anything like that. Um, but in terms of the, the ads and privacy, yeah, again, I don't know anywhere close to enough to say that like, yeah, you need to do this, this, and this. But it seems at least just because of what's happened with Facebook where their data has gotten into not necessarily the wrong hands, but hands that Mark Zuckerberg at least didn't un- realize it was in um, and was being used in ways that they didn't realize it was being used in. Um, maybe a little more regulations, even if that is internally. I don't think it needs to be external regulations. So that's in with a caveat. It is a complicated uh, topic. Yeah, I'm not smart but, enough for that. Yeah. Um, well, with that, let's bring on uh, another smart person on the podcast, Kevin Madden. All right, Kevin Madden, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall Podcast. We're excited to have you on. Great to be with you. Thanks very much. Awesome. So we are going to jump right in. Uh, we want to get a bit more of a perspective on the work you've done um, on political campaigns and also on the Hill. Um, so starting off sort of where you did in, in your big campaign work on the Bush-Cheney campaign, um, that was really one of your first big campaign roles as a spokesperson there. Um, so just give us a bit of an intro. What sort of work did you do there? Um, and looking back, how was that different um, in your spokesperson's role back then in 04, um, then maybe that position would be on a national campaign On the Bush-Cheney campaign. Um, well, I got into that because I'd worked up on Capitol Hill for uh, about two and a half years for a member of Congress from New York. So um, when they were looking for spokespeople on the campaign, one of the things they did back then was they sort of carved it out. They had a top spokesperson who at that time was... Terry Holt, uh, who was a, who was actually uh, sort of became like a mentor, a great mentor to me, uh, and then Scott Stanzel, who was the traveling press secretary, who was at that time uh, one of the spokespeople inside the White House. And then what they did was they gave everybody a region where they were the top spokesperson for the campaign for that region. Given that I was from New York and was working for a New York member, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to get hired to cover to cover this about 17 state region. Mm. Uh, which you wouldn't ordinarily think of as the Northeast region because it was as went as far west as Indiana and went as far south as Kentucky. Interesting. All the way up to Whoa. Maine. Yeah. Uh, I know that kind of always, I think, irked people when I told them when I was in Indiana or Kentucky that they were, by the way, they were in the Northeast it's region. It's quite a diverse group of people there, too. <laughs> it was. It was. But inside those, you were primarily responsible for about five um, targets, what they, we call target states, which we knew where the big battlegrounds were going to be. Uh, and for me, uh, that was Maine, New Hampshire, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, and West Virginia at the time. If you guys can believe that, West Virginia right. was actually viewed as a battleground um, back uh, back then. And then Virginia was actually one of those states. It wasn't seen as a battleground, but it increasingly became more competitive during mm-hmm. that campaign. Same thing with New Jersey. Uh, so that was where, um, that was, that was kind of my role there. Uh, but leading up to that, yeah, I, I worked at, I worked on the Hill, um, and, um, I had a pretty strong relationship because I was from, because I worked with a, a, a New York member, I had a pretty strong relationship with a lot of national, um, media mm-hmm. because many of them were from the New York Times or they were from the New York area uh, where the primarily, you know, this, there's this concentration of national media. So I had more sort of national media contacts 
than, uh, than your average Hill press secretary. So that was one of the reasons that I, I got recruited to the campaign. Uh, and the big difference, if you look at campaigns now to then, was like we actually had this thing called a news cycle. <laughs> right? What's that like? Right. It was like, it was, you know, back then, like you would have your morning meeting and you would uh, go through your morning meeting and you would discuss what your message for the day was and then you would discuss sort of what your planning for the week was and you could go and then develop uh, your relationships with your political directors for the states. You could reach out to your communications directors that were in each one of these battleground states. And you could, um, you could take your, not take your time, but you could be more methodical in how you approached, right. ha you know, de um, delivering the daily campaign message across all of those different states and across the mediums that you were working in, in those states, where there was local television, radio, that back then there was the emergence of blogs and more digital media. Uh, but you had probably until about two o'clock to really sort of make your calls through to reporters and uh, respond to reporters. That dramatically changed. Like I remember in the next election I worked in, which was the 2008 campaign where I was working for Governor Romney, it had sped up like times 100, mm. it felt. And that's, that was one of the things back then that it was, if you look back at it now, Man, it was like it's like black and white versus a whole different world. Yeah, 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 versus color. It's just very different. And so, talk about it a little bit. You know, you got some of your early experiences even before the Bush Cheney campaign in local politics. I uh, talk a little bit about how those experiences uh, influence your perspective on how you, uh, uh, you know your work with national campaigns. Yeah, well, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, uh, and one of my first jobs out of college was working um, for the city council in Yonkers, New York. A friend of my, one well, of my best friend's father was actually council majority leader, and he had known that I had a um, I had experience working with media because I, because I I had worked for a news organization called News Twelve Westchester mm -hmm. uh, as an intern uh, while I was in college, and so I knew a lot of the reporters, I knew a lot of uh, the the the, um, uh, the sort of local media, and and quite frankly, he was somebody who didn't really like the media, didn't know a lot about it, and. He, when he hired me, he's like, here, you, you know all this stuff. You can handle this. Come in and work for us and, and work as our liaison with the, with the local media. Uh, so, uh, and then he ran for mayor, and I helped work. I worked on his campaign, and it was a campaign that got a lot of attention. So uh, he needed a spokesperson for the New York Times when they came up from Manhattan to cover the, you know, the Westchester politics or the New York Post, or the Daily News, or local Channel 4 uh, affiliate out of New York. So I served as his spokesperson on a lot of those campaigns, and I was, what, 22 years old? Uh, that is a lot of experience for somebody that age. You usually don't get to get that type of on-the-record experience in a, right. in a national, in a major media market like that at, at such a young age. So uh, I learned a lot very quickly uh, as a result. Uh, and um, the thing about local politics is, um, you know, there's not a lot of theory in local politics. It's either the mayor of the city is like, he's picking up the garbage or he's cleaning <laughs> the streets or the lights, you know, the, the street lights are getting fixed. Uh, and like we used to say back then, um, one, of the, and one of the old timers in, on the city council taught me, he goes, nobody ever writes a letter to the editor saying the mayor's doing a great job. Nope. They always come at you with complaints and people who show up at city council meetings aren't there to praise you. They're there to yell and scream and and really make their voice heard. And um, there's a lot of face-to-face -face criticism. Um, 
that you get. And it was, for me, it was, um, you know, really just a, uh, you know, the, you know, you learn about like working the streets, working wards, working districts on the political side. And then on the media side, you also learn, um, you know, the, the hand-to-hand combat of dealing with reporters at a, um, uh, in, a, in a New York media market. Now, it was not the focal point of the New York media market, but it was still the New York media market. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you also spent a lot of time in some pretty high-profile places on the Hill um, working in the majority leader's office. Um, so talk to us a bit about that. Specifically, um, obviously, there was lots of sort of big, big controversial news stories or, or hot topics that were going on um, in the Congress during your time there, um, first starting with your transition working under Tom DeLay to John Boehner, um, and then also just some really big political issues like Hurricane Katrina response in the Iraq War. So you obviously is the messenger for um, a, a big shot in the House, the House Majority Leader. How did you go about navigating your job, making sure that you were pushing the, the national conversation forward on the policy topics that needed to go forward while also kind of managing the, the political aspects of all of that? Yeah, well, um, sorry, I'm just writing notes here because uh, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> Great. <That's fantastic. laughs> um, you know, working for Tom DeLay and John Boehner, um, those are two of the best jobs that I ever had. Um, and, and here's why. I think um, when you work in house leadership, you really do, um, those, those jobs are so interesting and so fun that you do really recruit the best talent around mm-hmm. the Congress. Uh, so to rise to the level of working in leadership, you know, was a, it was sort of a badge of honor and it really was a credit to um, the fact that you were one of the best at what you did up there. And I got to work with just some of, some really smart legislative people, some really smart political people. Uh, and, you know, Tom DeLay and John Boehner are, they're going to be historical figures. I mean, nobody, Tom DeLay was the best whip, he, the numbers counter to ever walk through the United States Congress. He was one of the best whips that you ever saw. And I worked for him when he was majority leader, but he right. still had those skills. I mean, it was so apparent just that he just knew where the, you know, where um, his uh, his conference was. He knew how to talk to members that he knew hated him. <laughs> <laughs> or that he knew that when, like the way that this member gained credit back home or, or gathered political capital was to be in opposition to Tom DeLay publicly. Sure. And he recognized that and didn't personalize it, didn't internalize it. He recognized that this is what happens when you have a very diverse majority. Um, This is how you maintain the majority. Uh, And one of the most important parts of leadership is listening, listening to the members and then using that to what he always used to say was grow the vote. and uh, Tom was the be- the other thing about that I loved working for Tom Delay was um, as a press secretary, spokesperson, communications director. One of the best things is you could never really do anything that would be outrageous. <laughs> uh, like he was such a fighter, and he was such a you know he really loved the rhetorical the throw of rhetorical bombs, so that you know you never you were never going to get hauled into the office and have Tom go hey Kevin like. You, you took it a little too far here with what you said and on the record. It makes <laughs> like, your job fun. It made it made my job fun. It was it was sort of freeing and liberating. For, so for a spokesperson like that that you, and you knew that you had your your boss's back because he loved he was a really he was a fighter. He really did care about a lot of the stuff. And the other thing is he didn't. It wasn't ever about him. Tom Delay was always someone like he, he would say to me. He'd say, "Look, the, the number one thing you have to you have to focus on is building a message and building a political." Uh, 
you know, a mindset that is about maintaining this majority and advancing the goals of this majority. So that was great. And then Boehner, too, was Boehner was uh, just an incredible uh, listener. He, he really was a great was great at understanding what it is that the conference needed to do. Uh, and what the, and the message that the message that needed to be developed for the conference in order to succeed. Now he was very good at building relationships with the media, and so he was a huge asset in that mm -hmm. sense. And, and which was a little bit different from Delay. He didn't really want to be the spokesperson out there for the for the majority as much. Um, but John also was moving from a very analog world into a digital world, and so he, he had to change a lot of his habits. Was you know to have these sort of BS sessions with all these reporters at a time where increasingly things were starting to be captured on digital, uh, you know, recorders or captured on digital camera or or, or tweeted out that type of thing. So he had um, he had to sort of like change his mindset uh, and the approach that he had to the media. Um, but that was, I think, on the to your to your last question, uh, some of the big issues that we worked on. Yeah, like it's, it was one of the things that I found, um, you know, very interesting about the job. Um, but and it's it's very different from today. It seems that, um, you know, it like we we actually when when I was on Capitol Hill, we actually did these things called appropriations bills, and we actually passed <laughs> like thirteen of them, or at least we passed ten, and then maybe roll the last three into an omnibus. Mm -hmm. And it's very different from the from what you see now is that there is a lot of partisan gridlock up on Capitol Hill. You don't get as many big things done, uh, and um, it seems like we're operating on like one continuing resolution after the other when it comes to funding. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's dramatically different. I think the folks that are up there now working in the job that I once had, they have a lot more challenges as a result of that. And also the digitization of the media in the sense that when I was there, a lot of power was concentrated in the office of the majority leader mm -hmm. and in the staff. And now, you know, one, Congress, one member of Congress or one representative of, like, a caucus an individual caucus can, with their Twitter platform or their own digital platforms, really scramble the entire conference message uh, in a way that makes it harder for those in leadership to be as disciplined with it and, prom and, and promote a unified message. Yeah. Yeah, and so one other um, big issue that kind of rocked the caucus in the time you were there, of course, was the Mark Foley uh, yeah. scandal. Um, so what you know, obligation, I guess, did you feel in the majority leader's office, even though that was an issue totally out of your control, to respond to that and, and deal with it? Well, the first obligation I had was to just make sure that um, that we were getting the correct information, that way right. I wasn't misrepresenting anything for, out, of, out of the office that I was working in. And this is one of those things where, uh, where the communicator in whatever office, whether it's a congressional office, house office, senate office, governor's office, a campaign where the, the the head communications guy or gal have to sort of turn into a bit of a reporter. You got to go around and you have to ask everybody, you know, what provide me the information. What what do I need to know here in order to promote um, our story uh, or promote um, the facts uh, and make sure that the, report, the reporters that are working on this are set straight. And that was uh, like one of my primary instincts at that time was just going around and asking everybody, just getting the timeline right, because so much of what was being, um, uh, so much was w what was being reported, or the accusations that were flying around, was all brand new. Like it mm -hmm. wasn't like I, I, 
you know, that day we had like a big bill on the floor. I forget what it was. Uh, that was the thing. It was like you're balancing other stuff too. Yeah, but it like jarred my memory from whatever like the big project, like the big yeah. legislative work <laughs> that we were doing that day. We were closing up the session. I remember it was like right before we adjourned for the summer, mm-hmm. and we had a lot of big things going on. And I almost forgot um, what how what whatever big issue we were working on that day because now I'm dealing with. Um, you know this wildfire and at the same time I have to go out and find out all the information uh, as much information as I can to, to, to make sure that we're 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 getting all the, the facts out there accurately so that was the main thing that that we had to do which is just go out there and get that timeline and then one of the challenges was that we were working with other offices that um, I don't think were as diligent in sort of getting the facts and that complicated the relationship between leadership and it complicated um, the effort to sort of um, navigate through that crisis at the time. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. And this week's tweet of the week comes from Tim Kaine. It's a selfie with Cory Booker. It appears uh, Booker took. And it says, I wouldn't challenge him to a snowball fight, referencing a previous segment on uh, fly on the wall, Cory Booker's snowball fight with Senator Jeff Flake. Um, but I wouldn't challenge him to a snowball fight, but I'm glad to welcome him to Virginia. Thanks for coming to, out to Alexandria tonight to support my campaign, Cory Booker. And thanks for taking the selfie. You are the pro after all. Um, just in case anyone hasn't been following the uh, Tim Kaine campaign launch over the last week or so, uh, he has been going all over Virginia uh, taking selfies um, at the various events that he's been to, and they've been on his Instagram story. Uh, and one that I found particularly funny uh, was when he said that his staffer told him that his, quote, selfie game, quote, uh, end quote, was, quote, on point. <laughs> uh, and pretty high praise coming from one of your staffers. And Kane, yeah, and Kane seemed a little uh, confused by the by the lingo. Um, <laughs> it looks like uh, Cory Booker's selfie game is also on point. Right, and so we want to get um, a little bit more also into your work on uh, Governor Romney's two presidential uh, campaigns, and yeah. you know you worked on both of them. Um, so you know, but even just between two thousand eight and two thousand twelve, you touched on the fact that news cycles started to speed up more and more. Yeah. Talk about how those uh, two roles differed, especially with the advances in technology and changes in political communications. Between two thousand eight and two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, two thousand eight, I was uh, in Boston, and uh, that was the thing that became very apparent to me that was different from 2004, which is in 2000, 2004, I could, you know, go through a meeting in the morning and then right. go, to my, go to my desk and sort of just execute, right? In 2008, I would be in, like, the morning meeting and, like, my, my, my then BlackBerry would be blowing <laughs> up. Or I'd be in the meeting saying, guys, I, I, I can't sit here any longer talking about what we're, you know, debating about what we need to do or say because I already have reporters that have put out have put out blog posts and are now updating them, and I need to get back to them with the with, you know, our, with our, our message, or I need to start executing on our message for the day or a response to this um, before noon. Otherwise, I lose uh, an entire I lose the rest of the day. So that was the you know the it was that 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 was one of the things that was just you know um, hard about that campaign was I still had. Probably the rest of the campaign apparatus was used to sort of the traditional approach, and now I'm trying to school them and execute at the same time on the new sped-up news cycle. Fast forward to 2012, and Twitter was a much more prominent right. part of campaigns, and it was, as I described it back then, and 
it was TNT for the news cycle. Like you could have your message for the day, uh, but something on Twitter would would blow it all up, and. Um, that was something which is that now you had an entirely atomized news cycle. You had four or five things a day that you had to you had to manage. You had to constantly program content in order to keep up with tw how Twitter was gauging the ups and downs of the campaigns, and then how all of that would then feed the um, the cable news cycle mm -hmm. that was uh, that was that was watching it and reporting on it. So sort of following up on that, um, talk to us a bit about television as well. So that's another medium you can sort of use to, to get those quick responses out there. Um, obviously not an easy job to be on TV representing a national candidate, um, but one which is obviously immensely important um, to kind of drive that message. So how do you feel like you guys did the job well um, and sort of where others have missed the mark on that? Well, what changed then was that um, everybody used to say, who's the spokesperson for the campaign? Mm -hmm. And I think it... One of the things I tried to promote was that we, we don't have a spokesperson in this campaign. We have spokespeople. Right. And we build a bullpen of, of surrogates and then manage those surrogates uh, accordingly, which is making sure that they were spread out throughout the news cycle and spread out across all the different mediums, whether it was uh, digital mediums, um, print, radio, television. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, that was... Uh, one of the things that um, we put a put a greater um, deal of emphasis on as a result, um, but like you know, they, I'd say just to just to complain a little bit or <laughs> or or, or uh, just talk just describe like the role that you yeah. end up playing as, as as one of the primary spokespeople was, um, yeah, you know, it was it was one of those things where my job a lot of times was to go on television and um, you know defend the campaign or. Um, defend and explain um, some of the mistakes that were made in the campaign, and um, that is um, that that's a that is a uh, really important part of being a spokesperson. As as, as I when I do candidate schools now, or uh, campaign staff schools with folks like the NRC, the NRSC, or elsewhere, I'll always tell the communication staff that's getting trained up. I'd say, look, it, it's it, you have to recognize that at some point during this campaign, unlike anybody else in this campaign. All eyes will be focused on you and how you respond on behalf of the campaign. Uh, and that is a burden, but it is one that you have to readily accept uh, when, you, when you take this position, which is that at some point you're going to be the person on air explaining um, and defending a, the campaign through a crisis. And a crisis in a campaign is guaranteed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no matter what, it's, at some point there is going to be an attack on your campaign and you're going to be the, the face and the voice of that campaign. And everybody throughout the campaign, um, from the person who's answering the phones at a volunteer center to the candidate themselves, will have their eyes on you and be depending on you um, and will be taking their cues from you. Uh, and that your poise, your professionalism, the ability to be optimistic, to be able to be the um, you know the face of calm amid all the chaos, um, will be uh, an important part of managing that campaign through that that moment, and to embrace that uh, to tell you the truth. Right, and so Romney, you know, started off in two thousand eight as a favorite, arguably, to win the nomination. Uh, he won the CPAC straw poll, for instance, mm -hmm. um, and ran a pretty close second to John McCain before dropping out after his apparent that yeah. uh, McCain's lead was small but maybe insurmountable. <laughs> um, so, you know, around that time, how did he manage to maintain a positive message about Romney's chances before he decided to suspend the campaign? Well, that's a good point, and people forget about that. Was that 
Romney, by many critics or outside or inside observers, I should say, uh, versus outside critics, but like <laughs> so many people forget that Romney was at four percent nationally the day he announced. And I remember, <laughs> I remember riding like in the uh in like with in the car or the van or whatever we had with the candidate back then after his announcement like we had gone we had started in michigan and then we went to iowa and then we went to south carolina and like a national poll came out that day and here we are we got like the media's covering us we 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 had a really great rollout mm -hmm. and we got this poll and i remember one of the biggest mistakes i've ever made on a campaign was like looking at this poll on my then blackberry and saying oh look at that like reading it out loud to the candidate and i was like oh four percent <laughs> and he was just kind of like, it's a long yeah. It was like he was like mad, and um, like I remember one of the one of the other one of the other staffers looking at me like, "What are you doing? Why would you do that?" And I thought to myself, "Yeah, that is a pretty dumb thing to do." Like because when you're the staffer that's traveling with the candidate, you almost have to be like a cut guy mm -hmm. in a in a boxing match. Like you can't you can't have the boxer come back to the corner and then just be like, "Wow, man! Like you're looking really beat up." Like, <laughs> right? You have to be the person who's like, "Go out there and get him! You're doing great." And I just for a moment I had a momentary lapse there early on, um, but that was that was one of the things is that is that we had to remind ourselves that we were still underdogs and we had we still had there were there were so many people out there who hadn't heard of Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. um, and that we had to create awareness before we could stimulate demand. Uh, and I think campaigns oftentimes they sort of get full of themselves and they think they're, they're, that the awareness part has already been taken care of and they ought to just be you know, creating the demand part. Right. Uh, and um, that was, um, that, so that, was, that, was, that, that ended up being what our, our strategy was, which is that we have to make sure that we, everything from paid media to earned media, uh, that, that, uh, to our campaign travel, to how we are we, you know, we take our uh, our philosophical approach to this campaign has to be like there are a whole bunch of people out there who haven't met Mitt Romney. We have to introduce them and then um, and then persuade them. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Politico's Astro People comes to us from an Instagram post from a Fly on the Wall uh, segment favorite here, Senator Chuck Grassley. His social media presence is just amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I really want to know if the staff runs or if he does. But regardless, it's a picture of him with former Senator Bob Dole outside of one of the uh, office buildings up there in Capitol Hill. He says, on my way to a meeting at the White House, I ran into my friend, former Senator Bob Dole. It's a really cute picture of them both. Check it out. Um, so, kind of jumping ahead to 2012, Mitt Romney did win that nomination um, to challenge Barack Obama, um, but it really wasn't just the sort of political and digital field that changed there, but really the kind of ideological field as well. So, you ran in a much more conservative primary um, field that year in 2012. So, how did those dynamics sort of change your messaging in the campaign? Well, um, back then, I think we had to spend a lot more time um, posting up uh, and creating contrasts mm -hmm. with uh, so many of the other candidates. Um, and that was one of the difficult things was that uh, during that campaign, if you remember, everybody had their sort of moment uh, right. with of like their flavor of the month, like Herman Cain or, or Michelle Bachman at one point yep. was uh, was the leader, and then Herman Cain was at one point the leader, and then Rick, the Rick Perry boomlet took place, and uh, the Newt Gingrich boomlet took place, and um, 
so much of, of the time and effort spent there was, uh, yeah, it was, and then actually Rick Santorum too. Rick Santorum mm-hmm. ended up like finishing first in, in Iowa in a very, very close race. Um, but so much of the time and effort there was uh, taken with, with drawing contrast against whoever the new uh, candidate of the month was. Um, and uh, so much of the focus, I think, during that campaign was how um, uh, was, was Mitt Romney could never break through, right? That was one of the things is that everybody said, like, the base doesn't love this candidate. Uh, and he is having a hard time consolidating um, the, um, that, that, that part of the Republican electorate and putting these guys uh, to bed. They're putting, putting, them, putting them to rest. But, um, but, but that, was, um, you know, that was one of those campaigns where um, everybody was uh, still focused on, on, on Mitt Romney, and that mm-hmm. was one of the difficulties was that every single one of those other candidates was trying to draw a contrast with Mitt Romney. They all wanted a one-on-one fight with Mitt Romney. Exactly. So, um, it drained a lot of resources. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort. That's why that, that if you remember, that campaign went on much further into um, the primary schedule, the primary calendar that many people had expected mm-hmm. to. Uh, and as a result, in 2016, they tried to front load uh, the yeah. primary process to avoid it. And look what happened there. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. Different situation. Yeah. So we're going to jump a little bit into the um, general election and just go through some turning points uh, during that campaign, and tell us a little bit about how the mood on the campaign changed and how you guys reacted. Yeah. Uh, so first up, Obama's "You didn't build that gaff." Yeah, um, I remember like when we when we heard that, um, we automatically recognized that it was one of those moments that could offer us a crystallization of the different worldviews between the two candidates. Uh, uh, you know, fundamentally, at the heart of Governor Romney's message, the message that he wanted to promote was that um, Barack Obama, President Obama, believes in, in, in the government, and um, Mitt Romney, Governor Romney, believes in the power of the individual and the entrepreneurial spirit of the American people. And so that moment, um, uh, in, in the minds of many on the campaign, and particularly the governor, was a, was a crystallization of the differences between the two. Uh, so yeah, we seized on it and um, certainly drove at, you know, tried to drive a, drive a contrast through not only earned media, um, but all the governor's appearances, but also in paid media. I think mm-hmm. they seized on that as well and tried to activate as many Republicans about what was at stake during the campaign. Uh, and I think the Democrats uh, and, the, and the Obama campaign recognized that it was problematic, but they weren't as worried as it, if you, if you think back in hindsight, they weren't as worried about it as... Um, they, as you might have thought, or we probably overestimated how much how much worry there was by on their end about it, because I think they believe that the, this campaign could be waged more on the question of who's on your side. Sure. Uh, and I think that was something. If you look at their message, we need an economy that's built from the middle out. We need an economy that's built to last. And who's on your side? Those three. The, those three messages were embedded in the DNA of every single thing that they did. And that was absent any gaffes. Like, sure, they probably seized on things that Governor Romney had done wrong, but they, I think, had a more fundamental message. Whereas one of the drawbacks of our campaign, and one of the self, one of the part of the self criticism that I would reflect on, is that we were chasing after a gaffe and trying to make it a central message. Mm-hmm. I think that's a mistake. Anytime a campaign does that, and I was actually surprised when one of the strategists on the campaign who was developing the um, 
the themes for the convention told me that that was going to be a day. They were going to build an entire day around that. And I was like, you know, building an entire day around a gaffe mm-hmm. seems like we're making the campaign not about us, but about him. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, one of the things that you have to do is motivate people to vote for your candidate versus just against the other guy. Uh, and, you know, those, those strategies are litigated during, inside the campaign. Some win, some you win some, you lose some, sure. but you, you move on and you try and execute at a high level uh, based on the decisions that are made. So another more or less unexpected turning point, or, or I guess big moment in the campaign um, that you guys had to respond to was Clint Eastwood's appearance at the RNC. Do you want to talk <laughs> yeah. a bit about that sort of no, insane I thing? No, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's some stories there. Um, the first time I'd heard about that, I was doing a CNBC interview, and uh, the host from CNBC said, hey, Kevin, we're hearing that there's a big surprise tonight and that Clint Eastwood's actually going to be giving the keynote for Governor Romney's address tonight. And I remember, like, looking into the camera and kind of laughing and nervously saying, well, you know, you're just going to have to wait and see. And um, there's a lot of surprises out there. You're just going to have to wait and see. I don't have anything to reveal to you. And they're like, okay, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Mm. (laughs) I take my earpiece out. I take my mic off. I immediately call the campaign manager, and I'm like, is Clint Eastwood introducing? <laughs> because I just had this thing previewed to me on CNBC. I don't know anything about it. And the campaign manager was like, yes, we're, we're, that, that, we're working on it. They've got the, you know, the guys that are doing the production of the thing. I've got some kind of community. I said, well, let me tell you something. And now, just to back up a couple of weeks, I had met Clint Eastwood at a fundraiser. Uh, where I was traveling with the governor, and we had met him at a fundraiser in, I forget where it was, it might have been Sun Valley, oh, Sun Valley mm-hmm. I know. And I'd met Clint Eastwood, and now I'm a big film fan, right? And I'd met him, and I really liked him, I really liked him, sure. but it was very clear to me that Clint Eastwood was, you know, um, he, was, he, was not as, he, he, was, he, was, he was not as dynamic and as... Uh, you know, and command of a speaker at sure. this fundraiser that we did that I thought he would be. Right? And obviously the RNC and you re- and then, then, then you realize, yeah, as a film fan, you're like, oh, these guys get several takes. They know how to nail a moment on screen because they get several takes at it. Politics at a convention in prime time, you get one take. And so I remember saying to the campaign manager, I'm like, you know, is this a really, is this a smart idea? Because when I met him, like, it wasn't one of these things where automatically I thought to myself, this is somebody that we need to have in prime time, live, introducing the governor. And, you know, at that point, what am I going to do? I, I, I can't, like, talk it's about not your it. Call. This decision, yeah. It's not my call, and the decision's already been made. So, you know, I mean, you guys saw it in prime time. Everybody did. And it was a huge distraction mm-hmm. from, the, from the core message of the day. And one of the most frustrating moments for me was while it was happening, I knew we had a huge problem on our hands. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the thing is that like a lot of people on the campaign, after they were watching it, when we did a call afterwards to sort of assess the damage, a lot of people were sort of kidding themselves. I remember a couple of the other uh, staff that I, that I worked with were like, you know, I saw it and I was watching it from the hotel room and it's, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't as bad as everybody said. And I was like, well, everybody, no, it was bad. And we're going to have to deal with it for the next 48 hours. So mm-hmm. let's get our story straight. Let's not try and kid ourselves that we don't have a problem here. We have a problem. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's not something you don't want to come out of a convention like that talking about 
a speech that has nothing to do with the central message exactly. of, the president, of, the, of, the, of the presidential nominee. And that was what we had. And then uh, last big turning point that we're going to hit, the first debate. The first debate in Denver uh, was a highlight of the campaign. Um, at that point, we were dealing with the fallout of... Uh, a little bit of the fallout of uh, not having the greatest convention, um, but we're also dealing with the fallout of the 47% remark, mm-hmm. if you remember. Right. And one of the things that really depressed a bunch of voters about the 47%, first of all, when you look at the metrics of a campaign, and campaigns nowadays they are just bombarded with all sorts of information That's and stats true. and statistics and metrics and, and feedback, the thing that was very apparent was like the negative information flow uh, on the 47% remark uh, and that controversy was so high. Mm-hmm. And it was extended. It was like over a week and a half. It was just nothing but bad news out there. And what happened was amongst even your base voters, that depresses them. They feel like the, the campaign is heading in the wrong direction. They feel like the campaign at that point hadn't really fought back hard enough or we were on defense and Obama was on offense. And that can sort of just depress your even strongest supporters. The the governor's debate performance where he just, you know, took the fight straight to Obama, it was for, what, 90 minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where he just, even by the accounts of Democrats that were, the Democrat, my Democratic friends that worked on the Obama campaign, they will tell you they knew they got their, you know, their butt handed to them. And that changed like that 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 was a represented sort of a sea change in voter attitudes at that point people who had sort of written off governor romney at that point sort of gave him a new look and the strongest romney supporters out there and the strongest base republican voters were energized Mm -hmm. uh and the information flow at that point was extremely positive for the campaign and we really needed that at that point we needed a real shot in the arm the difference is that that debate performance was it affected the atmospherics but it never really altered the fundamentals of the campaign at that point and we probably within you know a week to two kind of went back to where the campaign was before that that debate uh it's interesting yeah um so we are just about wrapping up we have one more quick segment it's a fan favorite it's our lightning round um so we have a couple questions for you they're quick sort of fun you just want to give us first thing that pops in your head so, so what, can we can we stipulate that it is nine o'clock in the morning? And <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. We had one cup of coffee, and I noticed you're sitting there with what looks like not a venti. It was that a, it's a grande? It's a big one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have anything. I don't have anything. That's fair. So I may That's be a record. tick, and I'm older than you, so I may be a tick slower here. That's all on the record. So uh, we'll we'll have our listeners consider that. Um, starting off, biggest difference between city and national politics. Um, the face to face. Just yeah. uh, the, the face-to-face, um, the, the, the ability to be face-to-face with your grievances. I mean, I, 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 you, you're at a baseball game. If you're a city councilman, you're at a baseball game, you got people booing your kid right, right <laughs> to your face because they don't like the way you voted on, like, the, the, you know, the, the capital improvement plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think you're a little bit more insulated from it sometimes uh, in national politics. Makes sense. Um, I guess that's why they call it higher office. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Favorite and hardest part about being on TV? Uh, My favorite part is um, just the war of ideas. I really do like, you know, debating and and having different opinions with people uh, that are, um, 
you know, have, have actually been out there and experienced working on national campaigns or have had a long history working on national campaigns. So the opportunity to be out there with like Paul Begala and like, mm-hmm. you know, Stephanie Cutter, people on the, on the, the, on the other side of the aisle for me, mm-hmm. um, but we can talk in really informed ways about where we differ, it's great. But then when you get, the worst part about it is, is oftentimes you get into shout fest with people yeah. who just want to be seen and heard uh, and they're in more into the performance part of it. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, if you were to get back on working on campaign or the Hill, which would it be? Uh, probably campaigns. Um, no. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to say the Hill just because I think the campaign, the thing about campaigns, I, lo- look, I love campaigns. Sure. Uh, and, um, but I think the hardest part about that is, uh, the, the, the time investment that it takes. And now yeah, a father of three, as a father of three, it is, um, you have to go all in. Like you can't, can't do it half-assed. Yeah. You can't do campaigns half-assed. And, um, I think the, uh, the Hill, um, is a little bit, you can't you like their huge time investment too. And there are people up there who make huge sacrifices, but. I think it's you know more focused on policy, more focused on a little bit more of a, of a rhythm and a um, and a and a method uh, than um, than campaigns are, which is just brutal pace, right? Oh, like, absolutely. I would say I always say like campaigns are like like it's like the Daytona 500, <laughs> except they last for a year and a for half. For a year and a half, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas I think the Hill is uh, it's more like those um, those races up there where you at the end of it like a parachute comes out sure. after you do after you do like a like a like you know a, a quarter of a mile mm-hmm. right. a little bit different yeah. um, well Kevin Madden thank you so much for joining us fantastic conversation following your career um, and sort of the campaign communications world thanks for joining us here in Florida that was great to be with you guys thanks for the conversation thanks Kevin That does it for our interview with Kevin Madden. Uh, one really interesting thing that I took away from that or that I really appreciated Kevin being so open and so kind of like thoughtful about was how things have changed because we were so lucky to get someone who's really worked on a lot of the kind of, you know, mainstream big news Republican uh, campaigns and Senate and House offices, I guess. He's really been everywhere. Um, throughout like such a long period of time, he was able to talk about like, how the job and the communication strategy has changed, which is something that like, I don't think we recognize enough because it's all happened so fast. And we kind of like work in election cycles, but having really started out way back in 04 to today, uh, he's still working in communications with his, uh, his consulting firm. Um, we really got a fascinating perspective on what that kind of world has, has evolved into and evolved from. Um, One other thing that I really took away from the episode is I think, you know, it, being a surrogate on TV is a lot harder than it looks, and you give surrogates a hard time when they make a gaffe, and, you know, we all know that uh, they have and they've affected campaigns in the past, but um, Kevin's a guy who's done a really good job on uh, TV in the past, um, and, it you know, more credit to him, uh, it, it's a hard it's hard to do. Yeah, he does. I, I love the part we talked about, like, what it takes to be good at TV. It's something you don't really think of. It's like, okay, yeah, there's that person, and, like, they got their script, but it's you're really doing a battle out there, especially while so much other things are going on behind the scenes in the rapid news world of today. 
So with that, we will see you next week. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on, um, and have a fantastic week, Flan the Wall.